The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. What is Jesus claiming when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life? It's important we recognize that in this statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus isn't really making three claims, but is rather making a singular claim. As St. Augustine would translate these words faithfully, Jesus is really saying, I am the way to truth and life. It's all mixed together. I am the way that you get to truth and life. And for John in his gospel, the words truth and life are used again and again to describe that which is of God, that which will last, that which is true, that which is eternal, that which is divine. And so what Jesus is really saying is, I am the way, I am the path, I'm the means by which you will find the true life that you were made for. I am the way that you will find and live into the true lasting life that you were made for. The problem is, as human beings, we often don't even know what that true life might look like. The way we define what life is made up of, right? What does life consist of? We can't even get settled on exactly what the good and true life is. It's like the joke about when God was creating the world. And as he came to each of the creatures, he first came to the dog and said to the dog, I will make life consist for you to be all about barking at those inside and outside your house. And for that life, I will give a lifespan of 20 years. And the dog said, 20 years of barking? How about I just take 10 and you keep the other 10? And God agreed. And then he came to the monkey and said, life for you will consist of entertaining people and doing tricks and making them laugh. And again, for this life, I will give a lifespan of 20 years. And the monkey said, like the dog, 20 years of entertaining people? Just take 10 and I'll keep 10. And God agreed. And again, he comes to the cow and says to the cow, life will consist for you of hard labor out in the sun. You will bear calves and you'll produce milk both for your children and for the farmer. And I'll appoint your lifespan for 60 years. And the cow says, 60 years of hard labor? I'll take 20 and you keep 40. And God agreed. 
Well, he came to man and said, and your life shall consist of sleeping and eating and relaxing and marrying and enjoying life. And for that lifespan, I'll give you 20 years. But man says, 20 years? Only 20 years? Why can't I have the, the, the other years that the dog and the monkey and the, cat and the cow gave back to you? And God agrees. And so it is that man's life consists of 20 years of eating and sleeping and enjoying themselves, 40 years of hard labor in the sun to provide for their family, 10 years of entertainment and doing tricks for the sake of grandchildren, and finally, the last 10 years, barking at everyone inside and outside the house. <laughs> but is that what life consists of? Is that the good life? Is that the true life we were made for? Or is there more? See, what Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, is that to find the true life that we've been made for and that we long for, that he's our sole way to get to that life. He's the only one, the sole way that we will get to this true life we've been made for. But not only is he the sole way to get to this life, he's also the standard as we walk on that way. As we walk towards that ultimate true life he has given us, his life becomes a picture and a standard and a teaching for how we walk on that way. But not only is he the sole way he's claiming, and not only is he the standard by which we walk that way to life, Jesus tells us that as we walk that way, he will be steadfast to keep us on that way. And that's the whole gospel. You see, for now, start with claiming this very hard claim that Jesus is making, that he's the sole way to true life. The true life that every human being's been made for. The sole way. Verse 6, the most controversial verse I would argue in all of Scripture. No one comes to the Father except through me. All the complaints... And all the criticisms of Christianity really can boil down to this exclusive claim that Jesus and Jesus alone will take us to the Father. We live in a world that doesn't like the exclusivity of any kind of claim. We like relativism. We like plurality. We like options. We like to keep our options open. And we do the same thing with our faith. I remember when I was in college, as a new Christian, I had a Baha'i friend. And I didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith. And he said to me one day when he found out I was a Christian, he said, oh, well, that's great. He said, I, I accept Jesus too. And I said, great. Are you like a denomination of Christianity? And he said, well, no, we accept Muhammad and Buddha and all the other great prophets of men of faith that have come along, culminating in our great prophet Baha'u'llah. And, uh, and he said, see, the core thing is, he said, I wish you Christians could understand is for Baha'i, we, you know, we don't exclude anybody. Like, it, it's so inclusive. Everybody's involved. Now, I was a baby Christian. I didn't really know how to defend my faith, but I, 
immediately said, well, that's really interesting. You said you don't exclude anybody within your faith. I said, but here's the difficulty. I'm a baby Christian. I said, see, I understand that what Christianity is about is recognizing that Jesus is the only way to God. And he said, well, we can't have any of that. And I said, well, then you're excluding me. I thought you don't exclude anybody. And I could tell him, I, I could tell I got him off his script. And I pushed it a little further and said, well, what about other people that would say that, that their particular faith or their particular approach is the only way? And he'd say, well, no, we can't have that either. I said, well, you're excluding them. Doesn't sound very inclusive. And we came to the point in our discussion where even as a baby Christian, I was able to articulate the logical inconsistency of arguing for this radical inclusivity of all beliefs. Because ultimately what it came down to is, no, you'll exclude anybody who doesn't believe in your full inclusivity. It's not really inclusive. It's a veil. It's, it's, it's a cover. Because we all know at the end of the day that all ways don't get to the same place. And that all paths are not equally valuable. And all decisions are not equally good choices as long as you believe that it was true for you. Jesus' claim, we have to face the reality, is nothing less than absolute exclusivity. That he alone is the way to God. The sole way to God. And we've touched on this along the way as we've walked through this series on the seven I am statements of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. For the disciples' ears, every time Jesus makes one of these I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the shepherd, I am the gate, I'm the resurrection, the life. Today, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the next week, finally, as we conclude, I am the true vine. In each of these, what the disciples are hearing is that phrase, I am am. And as they think through their scriptural experience, they can't but help think of that moment back with Moses before the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, where when Moses says to the burning bush, to God, to, to, to the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says, well, if I go to Israel, what name do I give them for the God who sent me? And God gives Moses his name. He says, tell them I am sent you. The best way we can transliterate that is the word Yahweh or sometimes the older Jehovah. But the meaning of the name of God given to Moses is I am. I am. And so when Jesus says I am again and again in John's gospel, he's saying nothing less than I am Yahweh. I am God come in the flesh. I am the sole way for you to go to God because I am God right before you. Verse 9 of our text a little later, Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What we really struggle with when we look at the exclusive claims in G of Jesus is we struggle with what does it mean to face down the hard reality that we have to submit ourselves to God. That we can't ultimately manipulate God and, 
hang on to our idols and our other false beliefs and our other false worldviews, that suddenly, if there is truly one God, we need to surrender our whole lives to him, and it terrifies the modern man. I like the example in The Silver Chair, I think which is the best of C.S. Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia. Again, Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure. Jill is brought to Narnia in the silver chair for the first time, and she doesn't know anything about Narnia. And as she wanders around, she begins to be parched to the point where she knows that she is dying of thirst until she comes upon what Lewis calls a deliciously babbling stream, but a lion was lying between her and the stream. Twice the lion says to her, if you are thirsty, come and drink, but she will not come and drink for fear of the lion. And the lion says, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Jill said, I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd also come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? Jill said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream, then. And the lion said, there is no other stream. We face down the horrifying and yet amazing gracious invitation before a single and sole God who says there is no other, but I have come that you might know me and be saved. Jesus is claiming nothing less than to be the sole way to God because he is God. And that is demonstrated in proof when he is raised from the dead on the third day. But not only is he the sole way to God, and this is what he's claiming when he says, I am the way and the truth and life, but also he's claiming that as we walk this way, that he is to be our standard along the way, our picture of how we walk on the way, that it's not just about the destination we're getting to, but it's about the journey as we walk there. 
So often in Christianity, we focus so much on getting to the destination. We'll get to heaven. We'll get to be with God. But how much do we think about the journey we walk to get there? Jesus is equally as concerned about us getting to the destination as he is about how we walk on our way there. In verse 5, Thomas, Thomas the pragmatist. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, really what Thomas is asking for, is he's saying, we need a guide. Clearly, if we don't know where we're going, we need a guide. And Jesus, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he's saying is, I'm the guide. I'm the means by which you'll get there. But when he says, I'm the guide, he's not just describing that final destination. He's talking about walking with us each step of the way. This week, I had the opportunity to go fishing near Vancouver Island, on Vancouver Island. Uh, it was at a fishing lodge that my grandfather owned back in the 1970s. And so I went there and I was fishing and, and, and it was amazing. It just so turned out I was fishing with a guide who had worked for my grandfather. And so when we were telling stories back and forth about my grandfather and the rest, but as he's guiding me as a fishing guide, here's what's important to remember. That his brilliance as a guide was not just about getting me to the fish. His brilliance as a guide was teaching me how to fish along the way. See, if you go fishing, you know this, if you go fishing and it's all just about how much I haul out, you ain't going to be happy with fishing because there are long periods where there's not a bite. But fishing is about learning to learn how to enjoy the sea, how to run your line and understand tackle and bait, to hear other fishing stories, to grow as a fisherman. That's the joy of being guided well. It's not just about us getting to the destination point, but it's Jesus teaching us how to walk to that destination point. He's the standard along the way, the standard for what our life is growing into. He's the way. Isn't it interesting that in the early church, for the first century at least, the church was not called Christianity. It was called the way. All the way through the book of Acts, you see this. Even Saul of Tarsus, when he's going to persecute the church, he's going to persecute those in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, who are followers of the way. In other words, when they thought of all the different ways to describe and give a name to what these Christians were doing, they called it the way because what they saw in those people's lives was a different way of living. They were living the way of their Savior. They were living more and more the way of Jesus. They looked different and distinct in their world because of the way that they walked along the way. For them, it was not just about a destination. It was how can I look more like Jesus now as I walk with him as my guide toward that destination. The context of this story, this moment, is the Last Supper. See, John 13 begins... This last discourse between Jesus and his disciples, they're at the table with the Last Supper when Jesus says these words to them. Remember what he says after he washes their feet? We'll get there when we get to Holy Week. We're reminded 
of why we call it Monday Thursday, Monday Mandate, Mandate Thursday. He gives us a mandate, a new commission, a new command. Chapter 13, verse 35, 34. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They will know that you're my disciple if you walk in my ways. Jesus, as he guides us to this destination, to our full eternal life, he's giving us this life now, saying my life is the standard. I'm teaching you how to grow into my life. After this text in John, in John 14, verse 15, he makes it even clearer. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. What Jesus is saying to us is as we walk on this way, his life becomes the standard for how we walk. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live more and more his ways. When Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, he's not only claiming to be the sole way to get there, but he's also claiming to be the standard by which we walk that way. His life. But it's still not quite enough. You see, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus is also ultimately saying, he's claiming that he will be steadfast to us as we walk that way. That as we walk this way of discipleship, as we walk towards that glorious final destination, as we walk home with Jesus, he will be steadfast with us to keep us along the way, even when we are not faithful. It's amazing how this saying begins. Verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And you want to say, well, what are they troubled about? Well, you got to go back to the verse before. See, this whole text about I am the way and the truth and life comes out of Peter's question just a few verses earlier. Verse 36 of John 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He's been talking about leaving. And Jesus said, where, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow after. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus says this, verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the, the, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus is pointing out the reality that as we walk on this way, his disciples, his people, will at times be failures, unfaithful, uneven performers. There will be many times that our walking along the way, keeping him solely in focus as our Savior, we will falter from that. And that could cause great anxiety, couldn't it? Peter, you are going to ultimately betray me. That's why verse 1 then he says, but let not your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why can we choose not to worry in the face of our own uneven performances? 
Because it's never been about our steadfastness. It's been about his. He is faithful even when we are unfaithful. He is steadfast to us even when we are not steadfast to him. And that's why verses 2 and 3, as I close, he goes on to share words that any Jewish hearer would hear as a wedding liturgy. A wedding description. You want to say wedding description? Yes, listen to verses 2 and 3. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And you may say, how does that sound like a wedding liturgy? And it's because this, in the Jewish world, they didn't do weddings the way we do them in the West. We have it all happen in a big day and a big moment. In the Jewish wedding tradition, it would span at least a year if not longer. Listen to how a Jewish wedding would proceed over many, many months, if not even years. And tell me if you don't hear the gospel in the midst of this. One of the greatest ways to read scripture, you could argue, is as a big wedding liturgy between God and us. The bridegroom would travel from his father's house to the home of his bride-to-be. The bridegroom would then negotiate a price, a purchase price for the bride. Have you not been bought for a price? The bridegroom would then share a cup of wine with the bride-to-be as a covenant sealing moment. And the words in that moment would be, this cup is a covenant between you and me. At that point, the wedding is sealed. They are not married, but it is legally binding. They are covenanted together. The bridegroom then returns to his father's house to prepare a place for the bride to live in his father's house. And while, he's, while the bride is waiting, she prepares herself for marriage. She learns how to be a bride. And eventually the bridegroom returns for his bride, usually at night, at an unknown hour, and there's usually a shout of joy to announce his return. And then the bridegroom takes his bride home, along with the wedding party, to his father's house for the marriage, supper, and their life together. Can you hear it? Can you hear the gospel? That Jesus' love for you and his steadfastness towards you is not based on your performance or your faithfulness, but based on the fact that you are his covenantal bride. Jesus loves you and is steadfast towards you, not because you are a wonderful performer and doing so many great things, because so often we are not. He is faithful to us because we are his bride. And we celebrate that covenant marriage cup every time we gather at the table here. And it's a reminder for us as the bride of Christ of who we are. This cup is the covenant the covenant between us, the steadfast, unchangeable covenant between us. Jesus will bring you home, not because you're attractive, not because you perform, but because you're his bride. What is Jesus claiming 
when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's claiming that to find the true life we're made for, that he is our sole way there. There is no other. But not only is he saying he's the sole way to this true life, he's also saying that he's the standard by which we walk that way. We look to his life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow to walk like him on that way. But not only is he the sole way and not only is he the standard along the way, Jesus is claiming that he is going to be steadfast to us as we walk that way. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That's what a groom does to his bride. My best friend in high school, Jay, was killed in a scuba diving accident in the Pacific Ocean when I was still in high school. And as I grappled with the pain of Jay's death. It was comforting to know that Jay had become a Christian just a year before his death. It was comforting to know that Jesus had come to that decision point that all people must face of accepting Jesus as his sole way to God. It was comforting to know that Jesus had for Jay become the standard. Even that very short Christian life, he was learning to walk in his ways and reflect the life of Jesus. But most comforting of all was to know that Jesus was steadfast to Jay to the end because I remember the words that Jay described on the day of his baptism. He invited me to his baptism at the Pacific Ocean, the same ocean that he died in, And he said these words. He said, Paul, I have been hanging out with Jesus for about a year now. We got to know each other. And he said, now I'm being baptized, which really means it's time to stop dating Jesus and get married. Jay died in that ocean that he was baptized in, but he did not die forever because he'd made the decision that Jesus was his sole way He'd accepted the fact that Jesus' way was the standard way to walk. But most importantly, he was married to Jesus. And what matters the most at the end of our lives is not how steadfast we've been, but that he is steadfast with us because he is the groom and we are the bride and he will always bring his bride home to his father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.